You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at redeemerfortbend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. Hebrews chapter 6. This morning we're going to read verses 13 through 20. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. If you're able to do so, please stand as we hear God's word. For when God made a promise to Abraham... Since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is God's most holy word. Please be seated. God, speak to us this morning from your word. Lord, let those who know you draw great confidence and encouragement from the truths of this section. Lord, let those of us who do not know you understand the predicament that we are in and draw us near to yourself through saving faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. On October 24th, 1929, the stock market crashed. Within two weeks, the market's value had been reduced by 50%. This severely damaged banks, which were heavily invested in the market, and that caused people to worry. Because before 1933, all bank accounts were unsecured, meaning that if the banks lost your money, you couldn't get it back. And people fearing this rushed to the banks to pull their money out while the banks still had some money to give away. And as people withdrew their money, the banks became even more unstable, leading to the collapse of thousands of banks, causing millions to lose their savings, and a decade of economic depression. Now this shows what happens when people lack confidence because they think something of great value in their lives stands unsecured. And when this kind of fear encounters turbulent times, usually the result is panic that quickly spirals into disaster. It happened in the Great Depression, it happens in other contexts, and it happens spiritually. Many people today have deep spiritual anxiety. They doubt the security of their position before God. This explains why many people pray the sinner's prayer over and over again thinking just one more time might give them a little bit more security in heaven. This explains why many people decide, after committing some terrible sin, that they've destroyed their position in God forever, and so they just go back deeper and deeper into sin, thinking there's no way back. This explains why there are support groups across America today filled with anxious believers who are convinced that they have lost their salvation or committed an unpardonable sin or the like. So many today struggle with spiritual anxiety because they lack an awareness or a personal confidence in the truth that God secures his people. 
But this morning, as we continue our study in the book of Hebrews, we see this glorious truth that believers' hope is forever secure in Christ, which means that we can persevere in the hardest times. And that's what we're going to see today in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. And today we're going to see three points. First, the example of Abraham. Second, Abraham's example gives us two truths which point to the security of our hope. And third, our hope is also secure because of the high priesthood of Jesus. We start with our first point, the example of Abraham. Let's remind ourselves what's going on in this book. Our author is writing to a church, some of whose members were drifting away from Christianity back into Judaism. And last week we saw why this drift was happening, because people in the church were spiritually immature. Not like new believers are immature. No, these people had been in the faith for some time, but they were spiritually lazy. And this laziness led them to drift, and this drift had put them in a place of terrible danger. Because they were now teetering on the edge of apostasy, of repudiating the faith. And apostasy shows that someone never belonged to Jesus to begin with, that they're still dead in their sins. More than that, last week we saw the terrible truth that if you fall away from the faith, after having personally experienced the reality and power of the gospel, you may not be able to return later. It's possible to wind up in a place beyond hope without the possibility of a second chance. And so because of this frightful prospect, our author is writing to these people, urging them, do not depart from the faith, instead remain in the faith and grow. Yet despite that hard warning, last week's passage ended with some encouragement. Despite these problems, our author told them near the end of uh, the section last week, around chapter 6, verse 9, he said, I still think you're saved. He says, your lives are still characterized by the sorts of good works that evidence real belief. But ultimately where he left things was this, chapter 6, verse 11, he said, We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And that's the big idea of this book and last week's passage. We need to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. We each need a wake-up call to ditch spiritual laziness. We need to become zealous and serious about our spiritual lives so that we won't fall away, but instead we will persevere to the end and inherit the promises. Now, today's passage develops this idea further. In verse 12, our author urged his readers to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises, and now he gives us an example of one such person, Abraham. Look at chapter 6, verse 13. He says, For when God made a promise to Abraham... Since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. Abraham, or Abram as he was then known, lived in the ancient city of Ur. Joshua 21 tells us his family worshipped idols. But one day, Genesis 12, 1, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God told Abram to go to a new land, and God made him some promises. That his descendants would become a great nation, that through him all nations would be blessed. And that was an amazing promise. Because Abram was 75 years old and had no children. But Abram believed God. And he responded with faith, which was evidenced in his obedience. He got up and he went to the land God showed him. And there God made him another promise. Genesis 12, 7. The Lord said to your offspring, I will give this land. But time passed and Abram remained childless. And so sometime later, chapter 15 of Genesis, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. Behold, you have given me no offspring. 
Abram says, time has passed, yet I still have no children. Your promise remains unfulfilled. In Genesis 15, 4, the word of the Lord came to him, Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. God restated his promise to Abram and Abram believed and God counted his faith as righteousness. And yet by the the next chapter we find that now 11 years have passed and Abram is still childless. And so he and his wife cook up a scheme for him to father a child by another woman. But God doesn't accept that sinful solution. And so God again appeared to Abram and renamed him Abraham, meaning father of many nations. And God renewed the promise again. Genesis 17, verse 15. As for Sarah, your wife, I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? Now it's been almost 25 years, and Abraham is still childless. Yet God says, your wife will conceive, and Abraham laughs. It sounds crazy, but he believes. And sure enough, in Genesis 21, 2, it says, Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age. Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. He waited 25 years, and for all that time it seemed absurd, even impossible that God's word should prove true. But it proved true because God's word is good. And yet, in the next chapter, Genesis 22, it says, After these things God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. God said, offer Isaac as a sacrifice to me. This must have seemed incomprehensible. I wait around for 25 years for a child, and you give me one? And you say, your promises will come through him? And now I'm to kill him as a sacrifice to you? How could this be the will of God? But Abraham doesn't say any of that. The next verse just says he obeyed. He took his son up on the mountain. And he built an altar, and he tied Isaac to that altar. And Genesis 22.10 says, Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. And the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And one more time God repeated the promise to Abraham. And these are the words quoted in our passage today in Hebrews 6. Genesis twenty-two sixteen. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of its enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. God repeated the promise and swore an oath that it would be true, that Abraham's descendants would be vast in number, that they would triumph over their enemies, and that through Abraham's offspring all the nations would be blessed. Now this is the example we are pointed to, this man whose life was indeed marked by faith and patience. Abraham demonstrated true faith. Hebrews 11 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And man, that was Abraham. He was in his late 90s. He'd waited 25 years for a son. And he believed God that his 90-year-old wife would conceive. That is insane from an earthly perspective. But it happened. And then as an old man... When God asked him to sacrifice that son he had waited for, who embodied the fulfillment of God's promises, Abraham hoped against hope that God would work it out somehow. And he obeyed, and he found God was gracious, and Isaac was spared, and the promise 
stood intact. But Abraham patiently endured hardship and disappointment and this impossible test across decades, trusting the Lord's word. And what was the result? Hebrews 6.15 says, And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Hebrews 11 says, The Old Saints... The Old Testament saints, though commended through their faith, did not what receive what was promised, since God has promised something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. And so, no Old Testament believer, not even Abraham, has yet seen the final fulfillment of all of God's promises. The Old Testament saints are not yet raised from the dead bodily. They're not living in the new creation. No, God has decreed all of his people from all ages will obtain that at once. So Abraham did not obtain the promise in the sense that he saw the final fulfillment. But he did live to see the beginning of the fulfillment. He had a son. And when you do the math on when Abraham died and when Isaac had his children, you discover Abraham lived to see his grandsons, Jacob and Esau. So Abraham died as a man who saw that God's word to him would prove true. The things God had sworn were starting to happen. His lineage was multiplying. Now, what should we here take from this example? First, friends, God demands that we respond to his word with faith. Hebrews 11:6 6 says, without faith it is impossible to please him. God gives his word to mankind and we must respond with faith. Not some intellectual commitment. No, a life of trusting God. A life that takes God at his word. That lives like it's real that believes what he says will happen, no matter what the circumstances around us might look like. That's how Abraham responded to God, and he obtained the promises. Friends, God has given us a word, too, in the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15 says, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and he appeared. We each and all are sinners. We are rebels in God's universe. We have failed to obey God's commands. We have done what God has forbidden. And Romans 6 says the wages of sin is death. Meaning not just physical death, but eternal death. God's endless fury in hell. But he has made a way of deliverance because God the Son became a man, Jesus. And Jesus lived the perfect sinless life that you and I have failed to live. And he died on the cross in our place, dying the death we should have died, experiencing the penalty for sin we should have experienced. And Jesus is risen from the dead, and today he is reigning as Lord in heaven. And this good news offers us salvation from the power and the penalty of sin, and it is receivable only by faith. Ephesians 2.8 says, By grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Salvation is God's gift, and we receive it by faith alone. Friend, you cannot earn it by your labors. And Jesus tells us what saving faith looks like in Mark 1.15 when he says, Repent and believe the gospel. Repentance means we've got to turn away from our old life of sin. That path we all start on that ends in hell. Friends, we've got to turn away from that by turning to Jesus in faith, entrusting ourselves and our destiny to Him because of who He is, God and man, and because of what He has done, His death and resurrection. Friends, we are saved by faith. And if you're here today and you have never turned to Christ in faith, you remain dead in your sins. You are on a collision course with the wrath of God. I beg you, turn to Jesus and cast yourself upon his mercy and you will live. He is the only way of salvation. John 14, 6, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So trust in Jesus. But application two is that true faith is not something we have at only one point in time. Real faith goes across the duration of life. And man, Abraham is a great example of this. In that despite the long years of disappointment and waiting, and despite his own sinful bungling and the hardships he encountered, he kept trusting God. And he's an example not just of faith, but verse 12 says of patience too. He had to wait a long time for God's promises to come to pass. 
Now, friends, that's usually how it works. The Christian life is not about immediate gratification. It's not believe today and tomorrow you'll experience unending sunshine and rainbows and health and wealth and prosperity. No, friends, it's a long war. It's a marathon, not a sprint. And friends, if we're like the original readers of this book, if we are spiritually lazy and adrift, how are we going to endure when hard times come? No, if we're like them, when we see hardship, we're going to want to cut and run like they tried to. But friends, real faith is persevering faith. So we need to mature because it's as we grow that we learn to endure. So we need to do the things we've talked about in recent weeks. We need to immerse ourselves in God's Word. We need to labor in prayer. We need to be involved in the community life of the church. So as chapter 3 says, we can exhort one another against the deceitfulness of sin so that we develop patient endurance to weather the storms of this life. But the third application here is that there is a promise to be obtained. The promise God made to Abraham ultimately points to salvation in Jesus. This is the argument of Galatians chapter 3. I'd invite you to turn there if you've got a Bible. Galatians 3.16 says this, The promises that were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. The promised offspring of Abraham is ultimately Jesus. And Galatians 3.26 says, In Christ Jesus... You are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So here's the idea. God's promises to Abraham ultimately run to Jesus and to everyone who is in Jesus, to believers. And that means that the real descendants of Abraham, the real heirs of the promise, are believers. It's not about biological descent. That's why the next verse in Galatians 3 says, There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, there's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Salvation is not about your ethnicity or your sex or your socioeconomic status. It's only about belief. And if you have trusted Jesus in repentant faith, the blessings God made to Abraham ultimately benefit you. Galatians 3.29 says, If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. You say, well, heirs of what? Well, it's not the promised land in Canaan. Because Romans 4.13 says the promise to Abraham and his offspring is that he would be the heir of the world. God has expanded the promise so that ultimately God has promised that Abraham and Jesus and everyone in Jesus, all believers, will inherit the world. Not just this ruined, sinful, broken world, but the new world that is to come, the new creation. And so in summary, friends, we are called to be like Abraham. We're to believe in Jesus, which makes us Abraham's heirs. We must be like him and live by faith and patiently endure because that's how we'll inherit the promises, which are that one day we will rise from death and live forever in the new creation. But maybe you're here today and you're like, you know what, that's great. But that sounds like pie in the sky to me because my life's hard. How do I know it's true? I'm glad you asked. Because Abraham's example points us to true truths which show us the reality of this hope. Look at Hebrews 6, 16. He says, For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. God has a purpose. The things in this world are not random. God is moving history towards a conclusion, which he has decreed. In Ephesians 1 it says, God has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. God is going to bring everything to a resolution in Christ, which will culminate in either renewal or condemnation. And this plan is in motion. 
Ephesians 1.11 says, God works all things according to the counsel of His will. God is at work in all events, bringing His plan to pass. And for our purposes, the most important thing we need to know today about God's plan is this. Titus 2.14 says, Jesus gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession. Jesus died on the cross. That's the most important thing in history. And why did He do that? To save a people for God's possession. A people for whom it can be said in Ephesians 1 that He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. Ephesians 1.7 says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Ephesians 1.11 says, In Him we have obtained an inheritance. And Ephesians 2 tells us what that is, that in the coming ages, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That's what God's doing, friend. He is saving a people that He has chosen to forgive our sin, to bring us into His family, that He might shower His people with His immeasurable kindness throughout all the ages to come. That's great news. And here in Hebrews 6, we learn that purpose is unchangeable. Romans eleven twenty nine 29 says, The gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Now, why is that? Because God doesn't change. Malachi 3, he says, I, the Lord, do not change, therefore you are not consumed. For Hebrews 13 tells us Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so God's plan 10 trillion years before creation is the same plan he has today, and it's the same plan he'll have in 10 trillion more years. He intends to save his people. If you know Jesus, I'm talking about you, God means to save you. And those that God has meant to save, He is going to save, and He's going to keep His people saved forever. That's some great news. If you believe, belong to Jesus, you will be brought safely into His kingdom forever. But you know, God isn't just content to save His people. He also wants His people to be thoroughly convinced that this is real. That's what the text says. So God not only secures us, He wants us to believe it. He wants us to know it. Now, unfortunately, this truth of eternal security is often abused in the American church today. I'm speaking here about much of the revivalist preaching of the last 150 years, which puts great emphasis on making decisions for the Lord, which presents saving faith as merely praying the sinner's prayer, which promises people that if you pray this prayer, you're guaranteed deliverance from God's judgment, and you can go off and do whatever you want for the rest of your life, and you are eternally secure, and you are guaranteed heaven. Friends, not one lick of that comes from the Bible. Saving faith is repentant faith in the deity, death, and resurrection of Jesus, period. And real saving faith endures to the end. Now, some people may express their true faith to Jesus in a prayer, but it is not the prayer that saves them. It is their faith in Jesus. And friends, many who have prayed this prayer believing that if I just say the right words in the right order, I'll be saved, have not actually trusted Jesus. And that's evident from the fact that so many who have prayed this prayer don't live lives that indicate any following of Jesus in any meaningful way. And that so many who have prayed this prayer have ultimately fallen away together, which this book tells us means they weren't saved. But... While much that is done in the name of eternal security today is not biblical. Friend, don't be confused. Eternal security is a biblical truth. And friends, we want to have a biblical understanding of real faith. And we want to have a biblical understanding of security. So God eternally secures all those who come to Him in true repentance saving faith. And He keeps His people in the faith. He perseveres us to the end. And He brings us safely into the new creation. But what we learn here in Hebrews 6 is not just that God secures His people, but that He wants us to draw great personal assurance from this truth. 
And because God wants his people to be thoroughly convinced of his kind and unchanging intention toward us, he has done something meant to give us greater confidence in the reality of the hope that we have in him. What's he done? He guaranteed it with an oath. Now, why do people swear oaths? Hebrews 6.16 says, People swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. People swear oaths to settle questions about the reliability of their word. And oaths have historically been accepted in every culture as a final confirmation that what someone has said is dependable. And why is that? Because an oath is sworn upon something greater than the person swearing it, appealing to some higher power for their help to keep the oath and to punish them if they don't. That's why people swear oaths on a Bible in the court, right? They're basically saying, God, so, you know, so God help me, right? And they're saying, if I'm lying, God's going to punish me. Now, in our cynical secular society today, people don't take oaths seriously very much anymore. But, you know, in the first century, there were also people who didn't fear God and who used oaths as a way of defrauding the unwary. The Pharisees. And the evil approach to oath-taking of the Pharisees led Jesus in Matthew 5 to say, Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Jesus wanted his followers not to participate in the evil system of oath-taking in that day, which saw oaths as a means of deceit and fraud. Jesus said, no, 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 if you're my follower, just be a person of your word, because God hates dishonesty. But oath-taking is not always evil, not under every circumstance. And we know that because in the Old Testament law, God made provisions for his people to swear oaths. And what was the most common oath sworn in the Old Testament? People would say, as the Lord lives. They would take an oath upon God. But you know, at times in the Old Testament, God himself puts an oath upon his own person. Now, if an oath is always sworn upon someone greater, you might think, well, who can God swear an oath upon? Hebrews 6.13 says this, Since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. And we see that in the Old Testament. Twenty-three times God says in the Old Testament, As I live, he swears upon his own endless existence that he will fulfill his word. And so God has sworn oaths. And here in Hebrews 6, our author points to one time God swore an oath. That time God swore an oath to Abraham in Genesis 22. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring. God swore upon himself to keep his promises to Abraham and Abraham's offspring, which we just said point to Jesus and the salvation Jesus believers have uh, that will come to us in the new creation. And so the point of all of this is that God has given us, believing friends, a strong source of assurance. An assurance that our author says we find in two unchangeable things. In God's word, the words he spoke to Abraham, and in God's oath, confirming those words. Now please understand, God's word would have been good whether he had sworn an oath or not. Isaiah 40 says, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Friends, God's word is always true. But not only have we been given God's good word, we have also been given God's most holy oath, which he has sworn upon himself, which makes his word all the more sure. And God's holy character secures this oath. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Titus 1-2 speaks of hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. God doesn't lie. His word and his oath are good. His faithfulness is absolute. 1 Thessalonians 5 says, He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. And so because of the, the sure and certain word of God and this oath he has sworn upon himself, we have a pair of reasons to have great confidence and assurance in the security of the salvation which is ours if we're in Jesus. Now, what should we take from this? Let me give three applications. First, 
Understand that the author who makes this wonderful declaration of our security is the same author who gave us the warning passage last week. Just like the warning pass, the passage last week doesn't blunt the truth of eternal security, the glories of today's passage don't blunt the warning. Both are true, and there's no contradiction. So, friends, we must not fall away, because that would evidence that we don't belong to God. Because the life that bears the miserable fruit of apostasy is, according to Hebrews 6.8, under a curse and destined to be burned. The life that falls away is not protected by the promise of God's security and should have no assurance because it never really belonged to Christ. That warning still stands. And yet, the second application is that we must not become so anxious because of the existence of such warning passages that we fail to glory in the truth of the reality and security of our salvation. Friends, God means what He says. And so when Jesus says in John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. Friends, he means that. If you belong to him, you're his forever. And he will raise you on the last day to enjoy endless fellowship with Jesus, with believers from all ages in the new creation. When we read in Romans 8, I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We could take that to the bank. If you're in Christ, you will never be separated from Him. Not by angels, or demons, or our own stupid and sinful choices. Nothing can or will dislodge the true believer from our secure position in Christ. If we belong to Him, His love is ours forever. Or when we read in 1 Peter 1 that He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time? Friends, we need to believe that. That we are being guarded and protected in our faith by God Himself. He is the reason we don't fall away. He is the reason we're brought to completion and salvation. Why we will obtain the inheritance. So believers, we should take great comfort in the wonderfully secure position that we have in Jesus. But this leads to the last application of this point. Look at chapter 6, verse 18. We who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Eternal security is true, but the point of that truth is not so that we rest assured. No, the point is that we hold fast assured. The point is that we strive for holiness assured. The point is not eternal security is true, so it's time for laziness. That's the kind of thinking that got these folks into trouble. No, the point is that we are to have a zeal and seriousness. That imitation of the life of faith and patience that inherits the promises, which is energized by this glorious truth that God is for us and no one can separate His people from His love. And so if you have fled to God through Jesus Christ for refuge, if you have turned from your sins to trust Jesus, have strong encouragement to persevere because God secures you and He will make good on His word and His oath and He will save you. And so because of these things, friend, hold fast to your hope. Don't be like the Hebrews. Don't walk away. Don't ditch Jesus for some other religion or philosophy. Don't abandon Jesus to chase the false pleasures of unrepentant sin. That would show you're not really His. No, hold fast, because your salvation draws near. So when persecution comes, endure. And when crisis comes, endure. And when the temptations of the world and the flesh and the devil come, endure. Because God's Word is good, and believer, He will bring you safely into His kingdom in the end. But this brings us to our last point, which is that our hope is also secure because of the priesthood of Jesus. Chapter 6, verse 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever 
after the order of Melchizedek. Our author wants his readers, and God wants all of us who know Jesus, to have a strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us, to be encouraged so that we persevere to the end and don't fall away. And now he gives us yet one more declaration about the security of our hope. Here he doesn't point to some example from the Old Testament. He points us to a present reality in heaven, to the priesthood of the Lord Jesus. Now this idea of Jesus' priesthood has popped up a few times in Hebrews. And although our author briefly touched on this subject in chapter 2, it wasn't until chapter 4 that he began to develop it in depth. And you might remember in chapter 4, verse 14, it says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. And what we saw in Hebrews 4 and 5 is that the old priests were marked by three things. They offered sacrifice for the people, and they had to be characterized by gentleness, and they had to be appointed by God. And in all three of these things, Jesus is far better than the old priests. Jesus has offered a better sacrifice. He has given his own life to save us. So Hebrews 5, 9 says he has become the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And he doesn't just treat us with gentleness. He has a sympathy for us because of his own battle and victory over temptation. For Hebrews 4, 15 says he has been tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin. And just like the priests of old, Jesus was appointed by his father. And Hebrews 5 quoted Psalm 2 and Psalm 110 to show us that the Father had declared Jesus would be our high priest. But Jesus is not a high priest within the Jewish priesthood of the Old Covenant. No, he is a better sort of priest. Hebrews 5.10 said, Jesus has been designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And if you remember, we said last week, just when it seemed like our author was about to start talking about what that meant, he pulled back in verse 11 and he said, About this we have much to say and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. And that led to last week's warning passage. But now the warning's over. Now our author's ready to go. He's going to proceed and talk about the high priesthood of Jesus for the next three and a half chapters. That's where this is going. And so now he reintroduces Jesus' priesthood. Now we're going to talk about what it means that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek next week. But let's focus on what's said here. Jesus is a high priest. And our author points us to the high priesthood under the Old Covenant. You know, there were lots of priests in ancient Israel. But there was just one high priest at any time. And the high priest had one significant duty which distinguished him from the other priests. On one day a year, the great day of atonement, he had to perform the duties described in Leviticus 16, which involved a special room in the sanctuary called the Holy of Holies, or in modern translations, the Most Holy Place. The Most Holy Place was a room that was normally inaccessible to the common Israelite or to the priest, and it was even usually inaccessible to the high priest. And nobody could see into it because there was a thick veil that blocked people's view. And nobody could cross the veil to enter the room. For Leviticus 16, the Lord said to Moses, Tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat. See, in this room sat the ark of the covenant. And on top of the ark of the covenant sat the mercy seat. And God said above the mercy seat, He would uniquely manifest His presence on earth. And so if anybody just walked into this room, they would be face to face with the glory of God and they would be struck dead. So even the high priest normally could not go into this room except on the great day of atonement. But Leviticus 16 said on this one day, the high priest could go inside the veil carrying a censer of coals and incense to fill the room with a thick smoke so he wouldn't just be face to face with the glory of God. And he came bearing the blood of sacrificed animals, a bull which had died for his sins and a goat which had died for the nation. And that's how the high priest could enter, briefly with smoke and blood. But here in Hebrews 6, we read that Jesus, the greater high priest, not a high priest after the order of Aaron like the priests of the old covenant, but a new priest after the order of Melchizedek, he has gone into the inner place behind the curtain 
He has gone into the Holy of Holies. Not in the temple building in Jerusalem. Hebrews 4.14 says he has gone into the heavens. Jesus' priesthood has not taken him into the earthly temple. No, Hebrews 8 says we have a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. A minister in the holy places. In the true tent that the Lord set up. Not man. Jesus has gone into the true tabernacle. Not some tent or building on earth. He has gone into heaven and into the very temple of God in heaven. Which is patterned by the earthly sanctuary. And Jesus in that heavenly temple has gone into the holy of holies. He has gone into the very throne room of God. Hebrews 9.24 says, Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. And Jesus is there in God's throne room, seated at God's right hand. And there he intercedes for believers face to face with the Father. Not briefly, not one day a year, not blocked by a cloud of smoke, but face to face forever, as our passage says. So Jesus has gone into the inner place behind the curtain as our high priest. And that's why we can approach the Father in prayer through the priesthood of Jesus. But more than that, we're told here, Jesus has also entered the throne room as our forerunner. The Greek word speaks as one who leads the way for others. See, Jesus is the first and best. He leads the way, but like a pioneer, he cuts a trail that his people are to follow. And so as Hebrews 10 says, brothers, we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way he has opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Jesus' presence in God's throne room is a summons for us to enter as well, both in this life as we approach him through Jesus, with faith in the gospel, as we receive cleansing by the blood of the Lamb, we become eligible to bring our hardships to the throne of grace and receive our Father's well-timed help, chapter 4 says. But more than that, friends, the heavenly holy of holies is where believers will dwell forever. The last two chapters of the Bible tell us, just like the earthly holy of holies had dimensions that were cube-shaped, the new Jerusalem is shaped like a cube. Just as the earthly holy of holies had the Ark of the Covenant, which symbolized God's throne, just as Jesus sits beside God's throne, when the New Jerusalem were told, the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. Just as the Jewish high priest stood before the presence of God, just as Jesus sees the face of the Father endlessly, Revelation 22 says in the end, believers, we will see His face. This new and better access to the Father, entering into this most sacred place, where access had previously been forbidden, Friends, it now stands open because Jesus is there and Jesus summons all of God's people to follow him so that in the end, throughout all the ages, we will dwell face to face with God in the glorious joy of his presence forever. And that's all true because Jesus is our priest and has gone through the veil on our behalf. And so because of that, friends, our hope is there in that most exalted place in the cosmos. Our hope is there behind the curtain. And it's not going to be struck dead. It's not going to be cast out. Our hope abides in the presence of the Father, secured by the Son forever and ever. Our hope in salvation, our hope in the gospel, our hope in Jesus is a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Friends, we have a durable, strong refuge through all the hardships of life. The Bible sometimes talks about God as a tower or as a rock. Here we see our hope in Christ is an anchor. Jesus keeps us strong and steady even when the storms of life and the winds of false doctrine and the waves of temptation would overturn us. If you are trusting in Him, your hope is secure because His Word is good, because He has sworn an oath to secure His Word even further, and because Jesus lives forever and personally secures our hope in the very throne room of God. 
And so this means, friend, that God's good purposes for believers is sure, unchangeable, and certain. It will come to pass, and it will secure every one of us who believes. Hebrews 7.25 says, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus' eternal life and endless priesthood ensure that He will bring every one of His people safely into salvation. So friends, we have a great reason to hold fast, to be confident that our eternal destiny is secure if we know Jesus. And this should embolden us. It should embolden us when we're persecuted. Because if all they can do is kill us, Jesus will raise us from the dead as he is risen. It should embolden us when things get hard because Jesus is alive, offering us his help in times of trouble, keeping us safe, except from those things that we must encounter to grow. It should embolden us to proclaim the gospel because God is at work in all things and he will use our evangelism to win the lost. It should embolden us to stand firm no matter what in the faith because we're not alone. Because Jesus will never leave us or forsake us. He has our back in the highest courtroom of the universe. It should give us confidence when we sin, that we can draw near and find forgiveness. When we are shaken, that we can draw near and be steadied. When we despair, that we can come near and be comforted, knowing that someday He will wipe every tear away from our eyes. When we lose believing loved ones, we can draw near in grief and find the confidence that we'll see them again. Friends, because Jesus is alive, his word is good, and our hope is secure, so don't give up the fight. Don't give up the faith. Imitate Abraham and all of those believers from the Old Testament. Man, they trusted God even when life looked like they shouldn't. They patiently endured hardship, and they won the victory. But friend, today, if you don't trust Christ, what should you do? Well, if you're not a believer, you need to know God's fury is coming. You should have spiritual anxiety. And you should flee for refuge in Jesus. Believe in Him. Cast yourself on His mercy. That's the only way you'll be saved. But if you're a believer today, don't despair. Don't be anxious. Though things should turn bleak, though life should look despairing, don't be overcome by fear. Because God has given you his promise and God has sworn an oath to you. And Jesus personally stands in the Father's presence to secure you through all your days unto the very end. And he guarantees that God's plan for the ages will come to pass. And that every single soul that belongs to him will not perish, but will be brought safely home. Friend, I pray you're encouraged by this this morning. And I want you to trust in this truth from Philippians 1.6. I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ.